from the High Center Studios of Messiah College and my own personal pipeline to grad school, Grantham, Pennsylvania, this is the Wave Improvement Leads Home podcast, a bi-weekly discussion dedicated to American history, historical thinking, and the role of history in our everyday lives. And now, here's your host, author and award-winning historian, John Fia. Thank you, Drew, and welcome to episode 37 of the Wave Improvement Leads Home podcast. Drew, today we are going to talk about graduate school in history. Not a week goes by when I don't have a conversation with one of my students or an acquaintance on social media about pursuing grad school uh, in the field of history. I think if I ever rewrite or do a revised edition of my book, Why Study History, I definitely need to include a chapter on this subject. I, you know, I'm getting removed from this. I finished graduate school about two decades ago. But as our regular listeners know, Drew, you are currently in the mix. Yeah. Uh, you know, I started graduate school in uh, 2011. You know, I'm uh, getting ready, preparing for my comprehensive exams right now. You know, and it, it's it's a very, very interesting, at times frustrating, at times depressing time to be uh, to be a grad student just because of of the, the state of the of the of the job market, the state of enrollments in our courses. You know, it, we believe very strongly in what we're doing, but we can't seem to convince other people that that, you know, of the same, of the same feeling. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, if we're talking about that subject, I can't think of a better guest uh, for today's episode. Yeah, that's right, Drew. If you are in graduate school in history, or if you're contemplating graduate school in history, if you teach undergraduates who are interested in graduate school, maybe you're even at a university that trains graduate students, you are definitely in for a treat today. Back in February, our guest Aaron Bartram, a 2015 PhD in American history from the University of Connecticut and a visiting instructor at the University of Hartford, dropped a bomb, I think it's fair to say, on the Academy with a blog post titled, The Sublimated Grief of the Left Behind. In this post, which eventually got picked up by the Chronicle of Higher Education, she announced that after three unsuccessful years on the academic job market in search of a tenure-track history professor position, She was calling it quits. Bartram writes, quote, I teach my undergrad skills through content and I keep the amount of content low. But as both a teacher and a scholar, I personally know so much stuff. I have forgotten more about Martin Van Buren than most people around me will ever know. I might find a job that uses that content, but in all likelihood, I won't. I knew what job would pay me to know a lot about stuff that happened in the past. I just couldn't get that job, and now I have to do something else. Now there are people who get PhDs and don't want to be professors, and that's great for them, and I'm glad they find the PhD a useful part of their personal and professional lives. But let's be honest. Most graduate programs in history are preparing students to be history professors. We can talk all we want about alt-ac careers, but when it comes down to it, Few of them actually require a PhD, and almost none of them need you to have learned as much as I've learned about the day-to-day operations of rural 19th century parishes. I've learned all that because I wanted to be a history professor, and because that's what my program trained me to be. I certainly didn't learn all that because I wanted to find a new career at 35, unquote. Bartram's post went viral. Only time will tell if it will serve as a clarion call for the reform of graduate school education. And perhaps we could talk more about this when we get Aaron on the air. Drew, have you read Aaron's piece? I I did. I actually distinctly remember I was uh, on campus at Lehigh and and one of my colleagues came walking down, you know, with his face hung low, saying, I just read a new piece of Quitlet and and you should probably check it out. And, you know, I, I went and read it. There's a, you know, there maybe there's within academia for grad students, maybe this will be like, you know, where were you when Kennedy was assassinated? Where were you at 9-11? Where were you when you when you ran into Aaron Bartram's blog post? What was your reaction to it, Drew? Well, I mean, it's it's an incredibly sobering read. I, you know, I think for many of us in, in graduate school, we've we've kind of forced ourselves to be optimistic. I know I have forced ourselves to to 
think that maybe we are the exception, but you know, for, for many of us and, you know, it's still time will tell if, if this is an experience I'm going to have in a few years, but you know, for all too many of us, um, you know, it, it, at some point we just have to kind of shrug our shoulders and move on. And I, I think the thing I really appreciate about her, her, um, her piece is, is the way in which it, it acknowledges the fact that we're, we're all doing work that matters, you know, in, in a perfect yeah. world, in a world that is functioning the way we at our core believe it should function. You know, we would all have jobs because history matters. You know, we say that on the pod- podcast all the time. Yeah. We, we do this because we think it is important, but we're just really struggling to find other people yeah. who, who agree. Yeah, I know that Aaron in some ways speaks on behalf of, I don't think she meant to do this, and, and I think she'll talk about this in the interview. She speaks on behalf of all graduate students and PhDs who are looking for that coveted tenure track job. But I think it's also telling that the author of this piece is Aaron Bartram. Uh, I know Aaron. I have been a big fan of hers and her work. We have worked together on a panel on religion and digital history. She has written for the Way of Improvement Leads Home blog. And I have learned a lot from her about teaching through her posts, especially through posts at the Teaching U.S. History blog. I wrote this shortly after her, her piece came out back in February. I'll say it again. Frankly, I can't think of a person more deserving than a tenure-track job in a college or university history department than Aaron, Aaron Bartram. So there is a kind of a particularity to this case, to her story, that I think is, is, is worth telling as well. This is not just some average, ordinary graduate school, graduate student, PhD candidate looking, a PhD uh, recipient looking for a job. This is someone who has spent the last three, five, seven years dedicating herself to the task, especially in the classroom, but also her scholarship is outstanding as well. Well, we have Aaron on the show in a few minutes, but first we need to take care of some business. Drew, tell us how to connect with our work here at the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast. Here at the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast, we are a member of the Recorded History Podcast Network, which is a curated collection of excellent history podcasts. Check out our work or that of our colleagues at recordedhistory.net. As always, we are able to do this work because of the generous support of Lisa DeGuardi, Kate Logan, Gretchen Adams, and Ron Schooler. And also many thanks to our sponsor, Jennings College Consulting, discovering the right college fit for your future. If you'd like to support our efforts, head over to thewaveimprovement.com and click support. And again, thanks again for all of you who support uh, our program here at the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast. Again, head over to that Patreon page. We could really use your your help as we begin to transition out of season four and into season five. We have some new needs, particularly in terms of studio producer. We're going to be losing Josh Lowry uh, at the end of the academic year, and we need to hire someone else. So again, we have some particular needs. If you could help us out by donating to the Patreon page, it would go a long way to keeping Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast moving forward. And as always, word of mouth is a great way to get the podcast out there to new listeners. We are on Twitter at T-W-O-I-L-H podcast. And, you know, just share it with a friend. If you know somebody, someone in your circle loves good history, someone in your circle keeps citing bad history and you want to correct them, you know, this is a great way to, to spread, spread the word about historical thinking. Aaron Bartram will be with us shortly. But first, John, you have a few words to share about graduate school in history. I was recently chatting with a high school senior who was interested in studying history at Messiah College. When I asked him if he had given any thought to what he wanted to do with his life, he answered without missing a beat. I want to get a PhD in history, he said, and then become a history professor. This is not the first time I have heard this. Most high school kids have no idea what it takes to get a PhD in history. It is a long haul, five to seven years of reading, writing, and research. Many Ph.D. students land tuition waivers and assistantships, but $18,000 a year doesn't go very far. And then there is the job market. The chances of landing a tenure-track job in our current climate are very slim. History departments, especially at smaller colleges, are downsizing. Retiring faculty are not being replaced. The number of students studying history is in decline. 
So how would I advise a student like this? How would I advise the sophomore or junior undergraduate history major with the same ambitions? Some professors refuse to recommend graduate school in history to their students. Such a recommendation, they believe, would be unethical. I am sympathetic to this advice. My view, however, is a bit more nuanced. First, we must remember that students go to graduate school in history for many reasons. Some pursue master's degrees in public history in the hopes of landing a post in a museum or a historical society. The job market is not great in these areas either, but a master's degree does not require the time commitment of a full-blown PhD. And more and more MA programs in public history, museum studies, and historic preservation are offering nice funding packages. Others pursue master's degrees in history as secondary teachers. They take classes on a part-time basis while they are teaching. In many cases, their tuition bill is paid by the school district. If you are a teacher in this situation and you have the time and energy, take advantage of it. It will keep your mind stimulated, keep you connected with the field, and improve your teaching. But those wanting to pursue a PhD in history face a different set of issues. I don't discourage students from pursuing a PhD or a career in the professoriate, but I make sure that they know what they are getting themselves into. Some students have passion for reading and writing history, conducting research, and devoting themselves full-time to a life of the mind. If they can land a nice funding deal, this is a great way to spend part of your life, even if the chances of landing a tenure-track job are slim. I often tell students to only pursue a PhD in history if they cannot see themselves doing anything else with their lives. And don't enter a PhD program if that program is not paying you to come. And by the way, that's more common than it sounds. In this day and age, students need to go into a PhD program realizing that they will probably not land an academic job after graduation. So be prepared. In the end, if you are willing to take this risk, or if you are independently wealthy, or if you have a spouse or partner to put you through, or you don't have a family to feed, then go for it and enjoy the ride. Erin Bartram is a historian of 19th century America, women, and religion. She received her PhD at the University of Connecticut, go Huskies, in 2015, and is currently a visiting assistant professor in history at the University of Hartford in West Hartford, Connecticut. Her work has appeared at the U.S. Catholic Historian and Commonplace, and she is currently working on a book titled To Make a Thorough Experiment, Crafting the Female Self in 19th Century America. She is a regular contributor to the Teaching United States History blog and currently serves as associate editor of Connecticut History Review. Bartram is perhaps best known right now for her blog post, The Sublimated Grief of the Left Behind, a moving and personal account of her decision to leave the Academy. Our guest today is Erin Bartram. She is a visiting assistant professor at the University of Hartford, an early American historian, a historian of religion, a historian of uh, women and gender. But she has made some waves recently uh, for a blog post, a viral blog post. We talked about it earlier in the show called The Sublimated Grief of the Left Behind. And we want to talk to her a little bit about that blog post and academic life, graduate school, the job market, and so forth. So Aaron, welcome to the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast. Thank you for having me. We have known each other for a while, and so it's a pleasure to, uh, to, to get you on. I know you've been busy. Um, you know, your, your life has taken a little bit of a turn since that blog post was published, and we'll talk a little bit about that. But before we do, uh, you know, just Maybe listeners who don't know your story or have not read uh, your your piece, um, tell us a little bit about your journey. Uh, you know, you what made you want to become a history professor? Uh, tell us a little bit about your journey to the to your PhD program. Um, you know, give us a sense of who you are and uh, the kind of uh, ambitions, in a good way, the ambitions that you had to be a uh, to be a historian. Um, all right. I did not really grow up with any understanding of academia. I didn't know any professors. I grew up 
pretty much working class in rural Connecticut. Um, I figured I'd probably end up going to a local state school like everybody else from my high school who went to college, which is not very many. Um, I ended up going to uh, the College of the Holy Cross in Worcester, which is a small Jesuit liberal arts college, which was kind of different. Um, I majored in history and music, and the reason why I majored in history is I don't know. I just put something down on the form. <laughs> um, I I was more interested in math, but I have dyslexia, and it's particularly bad with numbers, and I knew that I couldn't really fake it much longer. So I put down history, and that's sort of what I ended up doing. Even in college, I didn't I didn't not not that I didn't focus on it, but I was much more interested in performing and the other half of my academic life. Uh, I did get a chance as a junior to participate in the yearly seminar at the American Antiquarian Society, where a visiting scholar runs a seminar for students from all of the colleges. And I did um, a semester on diaries and private writings and got to annotate and edit some stuff and write a paper. That was my first citation. Someone used that later. But but I had mostly been interested in medieval history, and I had thought, oh, I'll apply to grad school in that, because I didn't really know what that meant, but it seemed like a thing that you kept doing if you were good at the analytical work and liked the research of this kind of stuff. Um, I applied in medieval history. I got in a couple of places. By the time that happened, I had already had to reconcile myself to the fact that I wanted to be an Americanist. Mm-hmm. And so I didn't go to those programs, um, and then I finished college, and I didn't really know what to do. Um, I worked in my old job in an antiquarian bookstore, and then I got a temporary job working for the National Park Service in New York on Governor's Island, which had just become a national park. I worked there for a while, but when my my time ended, I couldn't get I couldn't get a permanent job because it was a very desirable position, and it was 2005, right when there was just a huge flood of veterans who had understandable preference within the the federal job system. So I actually went back to grad school to get a funded master's at UConn in 2006 with the intention of coming back to work in the Park Service. Um, I'd hoped that that would get me... um, uh, would advance me on the job list. Um, and most of the people I came in with wanted to go on and get a PhD and be a professor, and I did not. And within a few weeks, that had switched. A lot of the people who came in wanting to do it all of a sudden decided they didn't want to. And I thought, oh, this is very much what I like to do. Um, and so I did my PhD there. I finished at the very end of 2015. Um, and from the fall of 2015, to the present, I have been sort of teaching full-time at the University of Hartford. Um, now, yeah. you, um, now, you have actually, like most PhDs, you have been, uh, you know, searching for uh, a, what we call a tenure-track job, a more permanent, long-term position. And if I understand correctly, right, you, you went on the job market for three years uh, mm-hmm. in a row. Uh, you know, nothing... Nothing, uh, no bites, maybe some bites, but nothing, uh, nothing uh, permanent. Um, And then in February of 2018, you decided that you were not going to uh, you were not going to continue to pursue this career path. And you wrote a blog post again called The Sublimated Grief of the Left Behind. Um, It became a viral sensation within the academic world. It was republished in the Chronicle of Higher Education. Uh, your website uh, blog uh, <laughs> right broke down right because uh, yep. too many hits. Yeah, um, and this piece really, really resonated uh, with a lot of people. Um, tell us about put that piece into context. Tell us a little bit about your experience, why you decided to write this. Uh, what is the central kind of argument that you're making in that blog post? And maybe why do you think? Um, you know, why do you think it's resonated so much uh, in academia? Um, well, so the thing is, uh, thinking about sublimated grief, I had sort of known that it was over for me since early January, um, yeah. when, uh, you know, the last sort of position that I had hoped I had a very strong chance for didn't pan out. Um, I knew it was over. And, you know, you talk about nibbles. I look in my Skype list and my Skype list is all of the phone interviews I've had over the past three job market cycles. 
Um, but I, I sat on it for, for reasons that may become apparent in the long run that don't need to be discussed. But I sort of waited to say that I was done. And then I got to a point where I couldn't sort of fake it anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, and there'd been a lot of, of really interesting and good quit lit out there. And I sort of sat down and wrote that in about 20 minutes. I had been thinking all of those things for, you know, a month and a half and I just put it out there. Um, and I think I'd read a lot of really good stuff and there was a lot of stuff about the systemic problems in academia, the, you know, the question of, is it overproduction? Is it, is it a divestiture by state governments? Um, all the different reasons for the problems of, of tenure track hiring in academia. Um, but I, and, and I agree with all of those and I have certainly thought a lot about them and I helped unionize my own, my own grad cohort and stuff. So I thought about that, but I think in, in that, sort of moment and I only wrote it for my friends on right. Twitter. Right. That was that was the genesis of it. Like the thing that was that was breaking my heart about this was that I had made so many really good friends yeah. and I was never going to get to see them or work with them again yeah. and I didn't know that they would that they would ever miss me. Sure. And that can sound sort of really egotistical, but it's a weirdly intense yeah. world and I mean, you were probably one of the first faculty members outside of my own uh, department that I had any kind of collegial relationship with, and it meant a ton. And so since then, I I built this network of people, yeah. and I thought, I, I'm just going to be gone, and I know what that means for me, and I want to know if it means anything to anybody else. Right. Um, and, and so one of the important things I can tell... Um, how well people read or how closely people read what I wrote is, you know, the title is the sublimated grief of the left behind. The left behind are the people who got the tenure track jobs. Yeah. It's, it's me leaving everybody else behind right. and wondering, is that a loss? I'm one of a thousand people who leave every year or however many the number is. Does it matter that does it matter that we left or does the field lose anything or is the only way that we reconcile ourselves to this constant process just convincing ourselves, well, nothing she did was any good. We're not losing anything. Yeah. Um, yeah. Someone, I saw someone who wrote about what I had said and they framed it as essentially the, the sentimental term in the Catherine Sedgwick, yeah. Uh, yeah. Harriet Beecher Stowe sense, which as a 19th century person um, I loved. And I think it was sort of, so much is spent on what do people in my position feel and, and are we quitting? Um, and I kind of wanted to turn it back around and say, does it matter that, that you lose me and a thousand other people from your professional life all the time? Yeah, yeah. I would encourage you uh, listeners who, who are unfamiliar with the piece, just, just uh, Google it, the sublimated grief of the left behind. And um, it's a very powerful powerful piece. Uh, Aaron, what has, what has the response been? Um, I know there's been some crazy, uh, responses uh, to yeah. the point where you've had to kind of, kind of, and, and in good spirit, I think you've kind of playfully kind of sarcastically <laughs> kind of, uh, kind of, kind of, uh, addressed some of the, some of the crazies, but, but generally, I mean, what has the response been and have you been, maybe have you been sort of satisfied with the response? Um, what, you know, were you, first of all, were you expecting, you obviously weren't expecting this to go viral. No one is when something goes viral. Um, or, but, but what has the response been? Yeah, no, I was not expecting it. And I went to, you know, went to school the next day and taught my three classes and, and came back to my office to find everything was bro broken yeah. and I had a million emails. And then I forgot that obviously I have my CV on my website and my, my inbox was full and I had a million DMs. I mean, I've probably had 2,000 emails and, wow. and direct messages from people in addition to all the comments um, that were on the piece and its responses. Yeah, it was sort of stunning. And, and it got overwhelming for me very quickly because mm -hmm. a lot of what I got initially was I had not allowed myself to grieve about something 
that happened 10 years ago. Thank you for writing this. I mean, I got a, a lot of people saying I had to pull over on the side of the road. I was able to show this to my spouse and they finally understood what it was. Um, so it was, and I got some of the most horrendous, you know, horrible stories about the experiences people had had. Right. I got emails from everybody else who's written Quit Lit. It's this weird little brotherhood. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and then I also know that there has been a response. Um, I mean, I noticed who I'm close to on who I who I'd spent a lot of time interacting with on Twitter who never said boo about it. Yeah. Um, and I know that there's that most of the critiques which have fallen along the lines of well, you know, we can't do anything and not everybody can get a job and and all this kind of stuff. Um, you know, a lot of those have been spoken privately, but they've been spoken privately to, to friends of mine who do have tenure track jobs who are sort of really upset about it. Um, I have gotten a lot of feedback in particular from people in public history who have been very thankful that I, I said, you know, you don't tell me to just go get a job in public history. Like right, that right. is a fallback career. Uh, I've heard a lot from people in public history, library stuff, all fields of academia. Um, I did hear a lot from people who this is the only way they know me. And they're like, you need to not apply to just R1 jobs. Maybe you should learn to love teaching. Yeah. And I was like, <laughs> maybe read anything else I've ever written. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, but I kind of was like, guys, there were 10 jobs in my field. Right, I, right. Yeah. Uh, and the most the most helpful emails and contacts I've gotten have been people that I know who know how close they were to not getting the job yeah. and how how they're the ones who sort of feel this the most acutely. Sure. Um, and so that that has been uh, kind of gratifying to me. Um, I'm sort of happy to to have have brought up all of these feelings, let you know, me, um, let, let it out. Yeah. Let, let me, let me sort of follow up on this. So, you know, you, you know, you're obviously sharing this sort of deep, deep, you know, f deep from your heart, you know, how you're feeling, you're grieving out loud sort of thing. Yeah. And, um, but then you kind of get this like instant kind of popularity as kind of, a. Uh, you know, Aaron Bartram gets it. She's put into yeah. she's put into words something that, you know, I have been thinking and have been unable to capture in print. You know, and you get all these people pulling off on the side of the road or something. <laughs> what what goes on through what goes through your head at that moment? You're kind of like, well, wait a minute here. Now, like, I'm suddenly like a, a, a someone who's able to sort of communicate at a level. I'm connecting here. I'm this piece is like giving me a name. Um, and then, yeah. but, it's a, but it's a piece also where you're saying kind of like, but I'm done. Right. But now you're not done because everyone's talking about your stuff. Is it just kind of like, I'm going to cut, I'm just, I'm just, this is my well, swan song and I'm done. Um, I, you know, I'm going to leave with, you know, at the top of my game here, kind of criticizing the academic, or do you now start to think, well, maybe there's something here. Maybe, maybe there's some kind of uh, uh, niche here that I can continue to pursue and write about. And I know you have written about some. You you you've continued to write in in pieces in the Chronicle and so forth. How do you navigate all of that? Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's both, and and that actually adds to why, you know, even having having had this public outpouring of grief and and made everybody else cry as well, uh, that doesn't in fact end the grieving process. Right, and right. so I have been in this twilight of I'm continuing to teach and continuing to do all these things. And that every day I have to re remember that this is ending. Yeah. So like right now we're getting to the time of the year when academics get so excited because it's sort of, I am going to have an amazing writing summer right, and I can right. do my stuff. And, and I don't know what what to do after that i mean i know i will stop getting paid and not have insurance and and i can slowly burn the 800 monographs in my house right, right. um so so there are there are nights where i mean like last night um i just i had been sort of working with students all day on these writing projects and and i'd had i'd had a you know, students are starting to get that I am not going to be there in the fall. It was never really announced. And so it's been coming out in dribs and drabs. So I have to keep explaining it over and over. And I've had to keep working. You know, as soon as that piece came out, I got an email a few days later 
from a journal where it had something under review where they were like, this was accepted with light revisions. Yeah. And I have, I had all these, all of a sudden, all of this stuff that was sitting there right. came to fruition, not because of the piece, but just because, you know, when people say, just get a couple articles out right. on your market year, like, I don't know, just peer review the stuff that gets sent to you. Maybe it would happen. But, uh, but I have to keep confronting the fact that like, I'm never going to write this book. Yesterday in class, we were talking about something and I, I went to say, this is something that I'm working on for the book that I'm writing. And then I had to say, yeah. like, remember, I'm not writing that book anymore. Right, right. That, that, that that book is gone. So it's been great to have people say, your writing is really good. And I've gotten a lot of, oh, I couldn't believe an academic could write like this. Yeah, yeah. Yes, many of us can. We just don't get any compensation for it and it's not part of the process that deans recognize so yes we can do this uh and and i did have people be like oh you just wanted to do this so someone would give you a tenure track job <laughs> if that were how to get one i would have done it yeah. before um <laughs> yeah. you know so i yeah. am thinking about about writing and i did you know i uh, i had a couple of other friends who sort of pushed me they were like the chronicle is you know having a lot of people still comment on your piece you should pitch them the idea that you can do more of this. So, so I've been doing that. Um, but I'm, but I'm still just, I'm still just really sad. I was reviewing a book for something else and I went to make a note because something in it had something to do with a part of my research. And I, I got so angry because I all of a sudden realized like it doesn't matter anymore. It doesn't matter how this connects to your stuff. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, so some people might ask Aaron, right. Mm -hmm. Listening to you talk like this. Um, you know, what, what, how do you respond to the person who says, you know, why, why make such a, such a clean break, um, with the profession, with the job market, you know, with trying to find a job in this way, why, why put yourself into that situation? Why not just sort of keep applying for jobs? You know, who knows, maybe next year or pursue, pursue whatever your next step is in life, but also, Hey, if there's a job out there that looks like it's perfect for you or fitting, why not just throw your hat in the ring? If there's, if there's, uh, you know, you are, you are a passionate person about teaching and it's your, you know, I sense a sense of vocation and calling, <laughs> right? Why wouldn't you, why wouldn't you, know, some people might ask, right? Why wouldn't you just kind of, you know, strategically make some hits here and there in, in, in applications? Why such the clean cut break where you have yeah. to, where you have to sit there and, and grieve every time you think about, um, you know, uh, uh, the way in which some dimension of your teaching connects with the book project or the, you know, the, the article that you got accepted and so forth. Help us understand that. Well, I, I think a couple of things. Number one, it's very hard to be one foot in this field. For better or worse, it's, yeah. it's, it's very all-consuming. And I think that's, that's what we like about it. I mean, it's, it's horrible in many ways. It's sort of like, this is a terribly toxic thing. Please let me do yeah, it the rest yeah. of my life. Um, but the other thing is sort of, I know realistically how many jobs there are and how many of us there are. And, right. and we've all seen, and you can probably link to it, the infamous AHA chart. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the idea that the job market has been bad for a long time is quite true. It is catastrophically bad now in a way that it wasn't. And if you know, I, I mean, I was starting my PhD technically in the fall of 2008. If you locate me on that chart, when people say, why did you think that it would get better? It actually had been getting better. And then the recession happened right, and it got right. horrible and it's gotten worse since then. Um, so I know the odds are not great. I know that the longer you've been out, the less likely you are to get a job. Um, I know in a sense, we have a lot of advice. We're just, just kind of throwing stuff at the wall and seeing what sticks. Cause yeah. At a certain point, it's a it's a crapshoot, and and we all kind of know that. But the other thing is, I actually just cannot afford to keep doing this. I okay. don't have a second income that I can lean on. I spent, I mean, I spent four thousand dollars of a twenty seven thousand dollars salary last year going to three conferences, three major conferences in my field, yeah. presenting really cool new stuff. And and spend all my own money on doing research because as a VAP you're not really getting research support and and now I would be in the position that that position will be gone and 
and I'd have to piece together adjunct work. And I simply, I can't do it. And also I just won't. Yeah. Uh, and that seemed to be the thing that bothered people the most. Um, it, it actually costs a lot of money mm -hmm. to do this work. People are like, can't you just keep doing it? I don't need, yeah, I'm not a chemist and I don't need a lab, but, but to go places and do research and, and the time you spend on this costs a lot of money. And I just am unwilling to do it, especially for, for no reward when the reward was actually just, can I get paid a normal salary yeah, yeah. all the time? Well, I mean, again, most, that's the question most people, when they, when I talk to people about your piece, right. Or they, they mm -hmm. come to me and ask me, what do you think? That's what, it, that's the question they are always asking, right? Like, you know, so I think the question on everybody's mind is, let's just say in the next job cycle, there's like, you know, the perfect job, uh, let's say, uh, early 19th century women, religion, <laughs> you know, you apply, I mean, do you just, do you just, are you now disciplined? You're just going to say, I'm done. I'm not even going to look at that. I refuse to, I refuse to, to do this again. Um, I mean, is that I, I, where you're yeah. at right now? I will tell you, I switched browsers. For, I stopped using Chrome and started using Firefox for some reason this mm -hmm. spring. And I noticed the other day that when I, you know, how it auto fills in your most right. common stuff, right. I hit H and, and the HNET job board does not come <laughs> up anymore. Yeah. You know, automatically. Yeah. I so mean, it's... you say that if there were this perfect job, there have been like a million jobs that no, there haven't been, there've been like sure. 12, sure. but you know, there have been jobs that I would have been perfect for, and that's kind of the yeah, problem. Okay. I think anyone who is on a job committee knows that there are multiple yeah. people who would be great at this job. I mean, you say it says early America, blah, blah, blah. I have not in this cycle and not for a while seen a single job in early America broadly construed that listed religion as one of the topics. Sure. People complain that there's no jobs in military history. There were four or five this year in U.S. military history. Yeah. And more than likely, the jobs that are at or the jobs that do ask for religion are at at religious colleges in particular are at Protestant colleges that often ask you to, to sign sure. a particular confession of faith. Sure. Um, and Catholic schools yeah. don't often ask you to do that. And I remember it. At AHA a couple years ago in this um, roundtable for grad students and early career faculty run by the American Catholic Historical Association, a faculty member at Seton Hall or somewhere saying, like, we kind of don't hire people who do the history of Catholicism. And just it was this moment where we're like, well, nobody's nobody is going to hire us um, yeah. at this point. You know, my, that that the number of times I have been told that my project is niche by virtue of it being about women who are half the population and Catholics who are the single largest denomination in the country, yeah. uh, that's kind of a problem. So you feel that the subjects that you decided to study, um, uh, religions especially, it sounds like, um, has, has hurt you. Is that fair? Uh, I, would, I would not say hurt me. Okay. Uh, I would also sort of say it's, it's religion, but it's also that it's Catholicism. Okay. Um, and I think it's more that it's understood to be a topic that should be studied in certain places by certain people. Right. So, so no one was ever against me doing this work at a public institution, but it meant that I was very much outside of a world that already existed. Right. So when I, you know, would go to Ash or or ACHA or something. This is American. Ash being American uh, Society for Church History, Church history. maybe, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and American Catholic Historical, right. that that there were times where I was the only person there from, and, and that I would have to lead with my undergrad, because at least right. it gave me some kind of credibility, right. and having to navigate being asked about your faith uh, in these various settings, in ways where it was very clear that the answer I gave was going to determine whether or not someone took me seriously. Yeah. Um, these were all really weird things. I remember the first time being at, at Ash and, and realizing with uh, our friend Mary Sanders that everything there, that church history largely meant the history of Protestantism. And and I think Skip Stout's son saying, this is, this is pretty good. You should have seen it before when they couldn't get Methodist history and Presbyterian history yeah. to talk yeah. to each other. Yeah. Um, 
So I, I mean, I try, one thing I tried doing was, was burying the part that was about religion as much as I could. Mm-hmm. But I could, you know, it was in the title of my dissertation. I couldn't, I couldn't now get away this, from it. You know, again, was do you feel that this was an issue of the subject matter religion, or was you know a couple of times you alluded to the to the fact that you yourself, uh, you know, you had to kind of appeal to your undergrad as a person of faith. Mm-hmm. Um, help me parse that out. I mean, you know, you could be a kind of atheist and be studying religious history. Well, um, not, every, this was not everybody would agree. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, so, so the the thing about being asked what your your faith is, I mean, there's an understanding still. People don't say this anymore, but that somehow, if you're studying the non-dominant version of whatever the topic is you're looking at, that it's somehow vanity studies or or, or a niche thing. Um, and there were people who asked me my faith because they because they did not believe somebody who wasn't a believer could write work. And then there were people who asked because they didn't think anyone who was a believer. And it was very clear to me from the beginning that picking this topic, the same way, unfortunately, doing, uh, you know, being of the subgroup that you're studying does this. And I remember a faculty member in my my, uh, grad program sort of saying, well, we should talk about this in your comps, you know, yeah. uh, wanting to wanting me to put together Bushman's biography of Smith and Joseph Smith, the Mormon yep, founder and, yeah. and Marsden's biography of um, Jonathan Edwards and something else and sort of talk about, you know, whether people could study. Yeah. People of their own faith. And I was sort of being like, if you even think that Jonathan Edwards and, and Marsden, like, that's not even the same. What are yeah. you talking about? But, uh, you know, and, and of course I don't say that, but I, in my head I'm thinking, well, did anyone ever ask you whether you as a white man from New England w- right. had, the, uh, had the appropriate distance to study white men in yeah. New England in the past? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that was kind of always there. Yeah. Um, but then I also think there's this idea that th- I ran into this a lot when I would be in places that, that focused on the history of religion. You know, there was a lot of like, yeah, 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 gender and class. Go back to that stuff about the Pope. That was great. That there, I had written something that was about, I think that tried to accurately reflect the way religion was one of many constituent ways that people viewed the world that they lived in, in the 19th century, that it was related to all of these other things. And I was sort of amazed at how poorly historians of religion and historians not of religion were able to get those things together in their minds. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so that's, that's, that is, that's very helpful and, and very insightful to think about yeah. you know, what yeah. the topics that you chose and how that may have affected this. You, you yeah. mentioned this phrase, Aaron, uh, quit lit a few times. Yeah. Many of our listeners may not be familiar with that. What is quit lit and is your piece quit lit? Cause I know there's been some discussion of, about this. People have, uh, people have written about this, about your piece. Yeah. Yeah, and um, the piece I mentioned before uh, by Grant Shreve sort of purported to be a, almost a historiography of Quitlet, right, like a, right. lit, a lit review of Quitlet. Um, I mean, broadly speaking, I think people think of Quitlet as I'm going out and I'm saying all the stuff that I couldn't say yeah. while I was in. And there is something very liberating about all of that. Um, this idea that it's a piece that says, like, I got screwed by this system and here's what's wrong with it and you know and I'm done I wash my hands of you um and and a couple of people have written responses sort of saying is it useful to reframe this as driven outlet because it still comes back on I mean I haven't been forced out no one said you can't do this anymore it's more that you have been driven to the point where you have to decide how much am I willing to take before I leave and and, and framing it as though it's just my choice. I'm just choosing whether I stay or go without acknowledging all the pressures that shape that choice is, is kind of a bankrupt way of, of thinking about things. Um, I mean, I guess it is quitlet in, in a sense. I didn't intend it to be. Obviously, yeah. I would have tried to do something to keep my website from breaking. I <laughs> thought like I thought maybe 28 people would read it. I mean, it was meant because I knew I had to say I'm going. Sure. To you know, you and like the fifty other people right. on Twitter on Twitter that I know, yeah. um, 
And so that's why when the Chronicle reprinted it, they kind of cut out some of the more, um, the more personal stuff because they wanted it to be a bit broader, but I didn't really mean it that way. It was very much meant to be, um, sort of a personal document from, from me to somebody else. Aaron, our time's just about up. Yep. But Drew, Drew, uh, Drew is back in the studio. Mm-hmm. His daughter is with us, so he's been behind mm-hmm. the glass for the whole interview. But he came back in the studio to ask you one final question. Yeah. Well, you know, um, you know, I, I am myself a grad student. You know, when I started grad school, uh, a little bit after you started, you know, I I knew the prospects weren't good. But it does seem like the prospects have have actually gotten worse, and 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 I I entered with some optimism that maybe things would turn around by the time I got to the to the stage where I am now, and so I you know I, I do want to give you a chance to to kind of give your advice to anyone you know the, this summer who's thinking about wanting to go to grad school next year or who, who you know has finished their 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 undergraduate work and now is thinking about putting together. Uh, graduate school applications. What would you tell someone in that in in that position right now? Um, I tell I I pretty much tell my own students who come talk to me that this is not a this is not a way to a a, a fruitful career, and it can be hard because it sort of seems like a, a good deal at the start, and particularly in two thousand six when I didn't have any insurance because there was no Obamacare and I'd been off insurance for two years, $15,000 in insurance was not bad uh, for an offer. Um, But I would advise people to, number one, uh, not go into debt for this. I didn't. And I was pushed to essentially, not by individuals, but by the the sort of broader culture, there was, if I had maybe spent more money to get all my research done faster, or I had gone more places and gone into debt for it, maybe that would have made it better. I don't think that it actually does. Uh, The other thing I would say is, don't assume that because you got into one of the top 10 programs in the country, that's going to mean you get a job either. I have said since I wrote this, that I almost wish somebody from a quote-unquote better program had written it because it did not escape my notice that the number two page on my website that has been read now is the about me. And all I saw on the Chronicle and everywhere else was everyone going over my CV with a fine tooth comb to find out why it was my fault that this happened. This happens to people from top programs. It's it's actually not just an issue of should we shutter some grad programs. So don't assume that getting into Harvard or Yale or Princeton or Stanford is going to make it work. Um, I'm I cannot, in good conscience, say, even knowing what I know now, that I wouldn't do it again because I I can't imagine giving up what grad school did to me as a person that I very much like the person that I became. And the only reason I could do any of this or write this piece or keep going is because of what I became in grad school. Um, and that's not much comfort, I guess. Um, you know, you can, you can make, make anything out of a, out of a bad situation. Um, but having your eyes open in particular, Drew, as you said, that it was bad, but it has gotten a, an order of magnitude worse. Um, and that there is only so much you can do about that. Aaron, yeah. thanks, thanks so much. <laughs> thanks so much for your time. I appreciate your candidness, your really your integrity uh, in this whole thing. I have been watching from afar and have just, you know, really, really been grieving with you, but at the same time admiring you for, <laughs> for um, you know, the way you have, you have handled this. So thanks for coming on the show and talking more about this. I wish we had another hour here. This has been really revealing. I didn't even get to all of my questions, but um, thank you so much. Um, we, will, we will be in touch. And uh, again, thanks for coming on. Thanks so much for having me, John. Okay, Aaron. Well, Drew, I just appreciated Aaron, first of all, coming on and talking about this. I, as I told her at the end of the interview, I appreciate her honesty and her candidness in addressing, you know, what is really a sort of painful, painful situation. I mean, this, you know, there's a reason why the word grieving is in the title of her, her uh, viral blog post. Well, yeah. And I mean, I, I wouldn't be I wouldn't 
if I'm being honest with myself, it, it was a hard interview for me to listen to. This was not the most fun episode for me to record. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's it it's it's a grief that I'm increasingly becoming at least comfortable with the idea that I'll be facing myself. She clearly has made a choice to to kind of separate from the academy, and I think she gave some 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 convincing arguments as to why she's made that uh, that complete break. Well, I think that's the end of our show for today. Drew, thanks again for joining me. This has been another great episode, I think, of the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast. We'll see you down the road. Connect with us on Twitter. Download those episodes. Get over to that Patreon page and keep us going. And in the meantime, may your way of improvement always lead home. This has been a production of The Way of Improvement Leads Home, a blog dedicated to reflections at the intersection of American history, religion, politics, and academic life. Visit us at thewayofimprovement.com. The Way of Improvement Leads Home is a member of the Recorded History Podcast Network. Check out the other podcasts on the network by heading over to recordedhistory.net. If you want to support our efforts, please rate and review us on iTunes, Stitcher, or your podcatcher of choice so others may more easily find this podcast. And let's continue the conversation on Facebook and Twitter. Follow us at TWOILH Podcast. The podcast is brought to you through the generous support of Gretchen Adams, Kate Logan, Lisa DeGuardi, and Ron Schooler. Also, many thanks to our sponsor, Jennings College Consulting, discovering the right college fit for your future. The podcast was recorded at the High Center Studios of Messiah College. Thanks to Ed Ark for his continued support. Original music is by Overholt. Many thanks to our guest, Aaron Bartram. Our studio producer is Josh Lowry. I've been your producer, Drew Durley-Hermeling, and your host is John Fia. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call. Click Granger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.